My name is Rick Renner, and this is Ancient Ephesus, one of my favorite places on the planet. And one reason I love Ephesus and I like to come here is because the grace of God was liberally poured out on this wicked city beginning in the year 52. About the year 52, the Apostle Paul had been ministering in Corinth with his ministry team, with Aquila and Priscilla, and they were finished. The Church of Corinth was established, and the Church of Corinth had really been birthed in the power of God. But they knew they were done there, and it was time for them to move on, and they knew the next city would be Ephesus in the province of Asia. So they boarded a ship in Chincrea, a port city in Greece, and they sailed across the Aegean Sea to the city of Ephesus where they disembarked and began their marvelous ministry in the year 52. And when they came into this city, it must have been very challenging because they knew no one here. There were no believers here. They were coming into an environment where the gospel had never been preached. Completely dark, spiritually very oppressive, filled with all kinds of temples and paganism and idolatry and sexual debaucheries. This really was the epitome of paganism. And Paul, with his team, came walking into the city and they went right to the very heart of the city where they began to preach. And in fact, it wasn't so long after that that they met Apollos and they led Apollos to the Lord and the ministry was birthed right in the very heart of Ephesus and the grace of God was liberally poured out with signs and wonders and mighty deeds. In fact, the Bible talks about special miracles that were performed here and it gave birth to the mighty church of Ephesus, the church which Jesus addresses in Revelation chapter 2. He corrects them, he commends them, he tells them what they need to do, just like he's telling us what we need to do today. Jesus is still speaking to us to bring correction to us and to help us so that we'll have great longevity in our spiritual life. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Stay tuned for a teaching you can trust, a message that will inspire, strengthen, and equip you with vital insights and understanding from the Word of God. Here is Rick. Well, here we are again today. Today we're continuing to look at Christ's message to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was such an amazing place. If I could, I'd pack you up and take you with me and take you to ancient Ephesus, which today is still one of the most amazing archaeological sites on the planet. But in that ancient city was the marvelous, illustrious, powerful, influential church of Ephesus, which impacted the whole region of Asia during the first century. It was a great church, but it had some problems. And Christ addressed both its good points and its bad points in Revelation chapter 2. And in those verses, those things that Christ addressed have great relevance for you and me today. And we need to hear what Christ said then and what he is still saying to us today. And so today we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, and then look at verse 2. But I want to remind you that I'm offering you my series called Christ's Message to Ephesus. It's a 10-part series which comes in multiple formats. The back of the series says what Jesus said to the church both then and now. We cover the history of Ephesus, the great revival of Ephesus, how Christians lost their first love, how to regain your first love, what it means to repent, what it means to be an overcomer. Actually, this whole series is based on these programs, and it comes with a marvelous study guide with Greek words and definitions. It is such a gift. You can use it personally or with someone else, 
or in a study group, I really encourage you to get it. And we're also offering my book, which I'm going to be reading from today, called A Light in Darkness. The front of the book has a quote by the director of the Pergamum Museum. Now, you can't get much more serious than that. It says, one of the most professional books ever produced on these subjects. On the back of the book, there's a quote from the former chief archaeologist of Ephesus and the former head of the Ephesus Museum. It says, my shelves are filled with historical works on this subject, but not one of them compares to this volume. You know, that is very humbling that somebody would write that about something that I've written. But it's why I tell you this book is like none other. It's really in a category by itself. It's 785 pages. If you don't read it, you can lift weights with it. But it's really a powerful book. I doubt that you'll read it all in one setting. If you're like me and like others, you'll use it as a reference tool. I say me because I still use it. I wrote it, but there's no way I can retain all of this information so I go to this book regularly to refresh myself about church history, what the believers in the first century were facing. It really helps me understand and it will help you understand the context of the New Testament. It will make the New Testament come alive for you. And it's not just text. It's not just text. It's 785 pages full color of photos, illustrations, photos that were taken by my team in Turkey. These are our photos. It is just a remarkable book, and I really want you to get it because I believe it will make a difference in your life. But let's jump into our study. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. But first, we've got to go back to chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we saw that John is on the Isle of Patmos, and on the Isle of Patmos, he has had a supernatural revelation. We saw this beginning in verse 10. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. We saw that this phrase, I was, is taken from the Greek word genomai. It means to transition from one realm into another realm. It's something that takes you off guard or by surprise. We know that John was in his cave on the Isle of Patmos, which you can still visit today. It's called the Cave of the Revelation. And while he was there, he says, I was. The Greek word genomai. Something happened that took me off guard. It completely took me by surprise. I found myself transitioning from this realm into another realm. And then he describes the next realm. He says, I was in the spirit. Now, the King James Version, there's a capital S, but there's no capital S in Greek. The Greek simply says, I found myself in a spiritual dimension. John moved into the spirit realm. And when he moved over into the spirit realm, he heard a great voice behind him as of a trumpet. This was the voice of Jesus. As of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book. And by the way, when Jesus says to him, write it in a book, it's with a sense of urgency. Do it, do it now, do it as quick as you can. This was a message that was very urgent for these seven churches. What thou seest, write in a book and quickly send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then Christ mentions seven key churches. He says, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamum, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. But he begins by addressing Ephesus. And this was the first message that Christ specifically addressed beginning in chapter 2. But before we go to chapter 2, you have to hear something in verse 12 and 13. It says, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven 
golden candlesticks. Now, the seven golden candlesticks were representative of the seven churches in Asia. Christ is likening the seven churches to seven golden candlesticks. We'll be looking at the reason why in just a moment. But notice something very important in verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, where he saw Jesus standing in the middle of the church. And in fact, in verse 13, when it says, and in the midst, the word midst is the Greek word mesos. It means to be right in the very gut. So John turned to see Jesus. He heard the voice of Jesus. He knew the voice of Jesus because he remembered the voice of Jesus. He turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. And being turned, he said, I saw the Son of Man standing in the midst, the word mason, right in the very gut of the seven golden candlesticks where he saw Christ standing in the middle of the church. Now go to chapter 2 and verse 1. And we're going to pick up. And in chapter 2 and verse 1 it says, Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, we saw this word angel, the Greek word angelos, it really describes the messenger, the overseer, or the pastor of the church in this context. Under the angel of the church, so now we know that your pastor is an angel. The word church, we saw is the Greek word ekklesia, from the word ek, which means out. It's where we get the word for an exit, the Greek word ek. The word kaleo, which means to call or to summon. You put the two words together, the word ekklesia is a word that was borrowed from secular culture in Athens. And in Athens, there was an ekklesia. It was a political body of people, citizens, that were called out from society to rule and reign. They made all the notable decisions in the city of Athens. All the writers of the New Testament knew the usage of this word ekklesia, which became our word church. It was no mistake that they used this word. And by using the word ecclesia, the word church, Paul and all the writers of the New Testament, even Christ in these verses, is saying that we've been called to make an exit from society. We've been separated, called out, called, summoned forth, assembled together to be a prestigious body of believers who make ruling decisions in the life of the nation and the cities where we live. We're not called to hide in some corner. We are God's dominating voice in every place where we are located. That is God's intention for the church. That's exciting. It says, under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. We saw the word holdeth is taken from the Greek word kratos, which describes a masterful grip. Now, the seven pastors are called seven stars. They've already been called angels, so your pastor is an angel. Now they're called stars, just like stars are guiding lights in darkness. Pastors are to be guiding lights for their congregations, for their communities. They are to provide light and direction. It's very important that this word star was used. But notice Christ is holding these pastors. The word holdeth, again the Greek word kratos, a masterful grip, which means pastors are in the right hand of Jesus. The right hand always represents ruling power. Pastors are not in the hands of the deacon board or the pulpit committee. They are in the right hand of Christ. They are accountable to Christ. They are answerable to Christ. And Christ rules locally through pastors. That's really what this means when it says they were in his right hand. But notice what else it says. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Now notice this. Who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now wait, wait, wait. Something's changed. 
Because in chapter 1, verse 13, the Bible says that Christ was standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. The word midst, the Greek word mesos, means to be right in the gut, to be right in the very heart of a thing. And Christ was standing stationary in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. But now when you come to chapter 2 and verse 1, he's walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. What in the world does this mean? I'm going to read to you directly from my notes. The word walketh is from the Greek word peripatau. It means to walk around or listen, to live and carry on in one general vicinity. It is a picture of a person who's walked on one path or vicinity for so long that he can now almost walk that path blindfolded. This person knows this path because he's habitually lived and functioned there. The word denotes the movement of feet. It suggests one who has walked in one region for so long that it has now become his environment, his place of daily activity. And often this word peripatato is translated to live or even to stroll. Something very important. Peri means around and the word pateo to walk. Christ literally walked circles around these churches and because that was not good enough, he came inside the church and he was walking, the King James Version says, in the midst, the Greek word mesas, which means right in the heart or right in the very gut of the church. And by using this word walketh, the Greek word peripatao, it tells us this is the vicinity where Christ walks every day. He lives in the church. The church is his heartbeat. He gave his life for the church. Christ loves the church. We live in a day when people diminish the church, belittle the church, but Christ loves the church. And when you come to Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, he's standing in the middle of the church. He's not on the outside looking in. He's right inside the church. When you come to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, Christ is walking in the midst of the church, moving his feet, strolling in the church. The church is his place of residence. It's where he habitually is. Christ loves the church. He is identified with the church and is living among the church. And notice that the Bible says he was walking in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Oh, that's very important. That word golden is the Greek word krusas. I'm going to read to you. It is the Greek word for gold, which was in the first century, when this was being written, the most valuable material that existed in the ancient world. It denotes that which is rare and highly prized. It can be used figuratively to denote something precious or of great significance. As far as Christ was concerned, the church was golden. Now, when you read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, all seven of these churches seemed very clay. They had real problems. They had real defects. But when we come to this verse, Christ doesn't say, oh, you're so defective. You've got so many problems. But rather, Christ is looking at the church as though it is golden. It's dear to him. It is precious to him. There's nothing more valuable to Christ than the church. He gave his life for the church. He died for the church. He gave his blood for the church. He was raised from the dead for the church. And today Christ seats at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for the church. The church is everything to Christ. And let me tell you, friend, if you have a different opinion of the church, then your opinion needs to change. What Jesus thinks, we need to think. Now, the church may have problems, and it does. These seven churches 
all had problems. Five of them received a serious rebuke, but it didn't change the fact that they were golden to Christ. And if they're golden to him, they, the church needs to be golden to us. Whatever is the opinion of Jesus, it needs to be our opinion. And in the view of Jesus, the church is pure gold. Say amen. That is so powerful. But the Bible says he was walking in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. The word candlestick is the Greek word luknas. In this verse, it is luknia, the plural version. But it described an oil-burning lamp carried by hand, positioned on a table, elevated on a stand. These lamps were fashioned of earth and clay with a reservoir to hold oil and a wick that gave light and darkness once it was lighted. Oil-burning lamps were vital to life because they were the only source of light in darkness. Now, most people, when they see this word candlestick, think of a candlestick like this. But there's a problem because candlesticks like this were not invented till nearly a thousand years later than Revelation chapter 2. Almost a thousand years later. So this is not what Christ had in his mind. What did Christ have in his mind? He had a lamp like this, an oil burning lamp. This is an authentic oil burning lamp from the first century. And on the table in front of me, I have seven of them. They're all authentic. They're all ancient relics. They're all real. This is what Christ had in his mind. There was no such thing as a candlestick for Christ to refer to. Christ was referring to an oil burning lamp. Now, why did he use this illustration to describe the church? And I'm going to read to you from page 73 in my book, Light and Darkness, because I cannot improve on what I wrote. So listen carefully to what I say. The word candlestick used in Revelation is the Greek word luknas. That's what we're talking about. This word could only refer to an oil-burning lamp, which was the primary source of man-made light used in New Testament times. This type of lamp was fashioned from clay and was small enough to be carried in the palm of one's hand. It was designed to hold oil. It had a long wick that, once saturated, could be ignited to illuminate darkness. Consequently, the lamp was a very important part of daily life. These oil-burning lamps were made of clay and were very fragile. That's important. They were clay. These are all made of clay. Often they were so brittle that they could be broken by the mere squeeze of a hand. Therefore, anyone carrying one of these lamps had to be careful not to break it. It's clear why God used these lamps to symbolically depict the church of Jesus Christ. The church is comprised of fragile, imperfect human beings. Who would have ever imagined that God would put his spirit in a vessel so fragile as a human body or as fragile as the church? But that is precisely what God did. God chose the church as his primary instrument for giving his light to a dark world. Now listen, these earthen lamps contained oil. Of course, oil is representative of the Holy Spirit in both the Old and the New Testament. Just as these oil-burning lamps contained oil, the church is the container of the Holy Spirit in the world today. Although it is true that the weaknesses of God's people are very evident, it is even more true that God has graciously chosen to deposit the oil of the Holy Spirit inside us and that he has provided a sufficient measure of that divine oil for the church to extend his life-giving light to the very ends of the earth." For the oil in these ancient lamps to provide light, a wick was required. The wick was inserted into the mouth of the lamp. 
Here's another one. This is a Greek one. You can see that it has a mouth. A long wick was inserted into the mouth of the lamp. The wick, once inserted, ran deep into the base where it became saturated with oil. And when the wick was then lit, it would burn and give light for many hours to those that were in darkness. Likewise, the church contains a reservoir of the Holy Spirit's oil, but each believer must allow his or heart his or her heart to become soaked in that oil before he can really begin to shine God's light into the world as God intended. It's also significant to note that the light was produced at the mouth of this oil burning lamp. Similarly, a believer's mouth is the outlet for the Holy Spirit's fire and light to pour forth through the preaching of the gospel. As dark as the world is today, it is difficult to imagine how much darker it would be if there were no faithful believers using their mouths to proclaim the life-giving truth of Jesus Christ. And there's something else very important. All of these lamps are very different. Look at these. These are original. And notice none of them are the same. They all look different. Isn't that amazing? You will never find any first century lamps that are identical to one another because they're all made by hand. They all have a different pattern from each other. They all have unique characteristics. And in the same way, there's no such thing as two churches that are identical. If you're trying to make your church like somebody else, stop it. Your church is never going to be like another church. There are no two lamps that are identical. And likewise, your church will never be identical to another church. Your church has its own features. It has its own characteristics. God made it that way. It's your church for your city, for your street, for your neighborhood. So it's going to have features that are unique just to your church. Every church has its own characteristic. It's amazing. The church, the church of Jesus Christ, we are God's lamp in the earth. We are filled with a reservoir of the Holy Spirit. And when our hearts are soaked and saturated in the anointing of God, and when we open our mouths, we begin to bring light into darkness. One more important thing, lamps had a handle. They could be directed. And likewise, we are in the hands of Christ, and he has the right and the authority to direct the church <clears throat> as he desires. We are his light in darkness. We are the church. And Christ was not standing on the exterior of the church as though he was ashamed of it. But in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, he's standing right in the middle of the church. And in fact, he knows the church so well that in verse 2, he says, I know thy works. He knew everything about them. And now he begins to address what he has seen about the church of Ephesus. It's going to be good. We're out of time. I'll be back in just a moment. The Bible comes to life like never before with Rick Renner's book, A Light in Darkness. Step into the world of the New Testament as Rick Renner transports you to the ancient cities of the early church, revealing the relevance of Jesus' messages to the church then and why those messages still resonate for his church today. Rick reveals insight into the ancient world and the disturbing realities the early believers faced as the church began to flourish in a pagan world with unsurpassed detail. Fascinating insights and historical context. You'll have a greater appreciation and understanding of Scripture and how you should interpret it for today. This beautifully bound, 800-page, full-color biblical resource can be yours for $80. Features on-location photography with added artwork and illustrations to enhance the in-depth scriptural teaching that makes the New Testament come alive. 
when you call or go online today. You can also get Christ's Message to Ephesus, an in-depth 10-part teaching series that delves deep into the message Jesus gave to the Ephesian church. The church of Ephesus was a successful church on the outside, but they had drifted from their first love of Jesus. Available in digital or physical format, starting at just $20. Rick uses this teaching series to remind you to return to your first love of Jesus. A light in darkness and Christ's message to Ephesus. Call now or go to renner.org to order. Friends, this is Rick Renner. Now, right now, I'm in the interior of the Moscow Good News Church. It is quite an amazing place. When you walk through this building, it's so beautiful and it testifies to the grace of God and the provision of God and the giving of our church and of our partners. We built this facility debt-free, and because of that, the Moscow Church has never had the burden of monthly payments. All of our funds have been released to do the work of the gospel. And now we need to do that in Tulsa, and I call this Phase 3. And I'm asking you today to pray about joining us as part of the giving team for Phase 3, which is paying off the Tulsa facility. And the reason we want to pay it off is because then it will release funds for us to take the teaching of the Bible to the ends of the earth. And dear friend, right now, the Bible is so needed. And I know that that's my heart and that is your heart. And together, we can take the Bible to the ends of the earth. So please pray about joining us for phase three to finish paying off the Tulsa building. And I want to say thank you in advance. We're looking at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 where Christ was walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. We've seen that Christ was walking in the midst, walking the Greek word peripateo. It was his regular place of habitation where he moved his feet. He was strolling in the midst of the church. Peri means around. Patos means on the inside. Walking around the church, coming inside the church, Christ loves the church. It is the vicinity where he lives. It is where he functions. In fact, he loves it so much that in this verse, he calls the church his seven golden candlesticks. The word golden, the Greek word krusos. The church is gold to Jesus. You may not see it as golden, but it is gold. Jesus died for it. And he calls it his candlesticks. Not like this. This kind of candlestick was invented almost a thousand years later. But Jesus was referring to a lamp like this, an oil-burning lamp. This is an authentic oil-burning lamp from about the first century. This is what Christ was referring to. We are the church. This is made out of clay. And you may look at the church as if it is made out of clay, and the church is very imperfect. But in the mind of Christ, we're gold. Because, like this lamp, which once held oil, we are the reservoir of the Holy Spirit, and we have a mouth just like the lamp had a mouth, and through our mouth, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the fire of the Holy Spirit, we bring light into darkness. We are golden to Jesus. That's who we are. Wow. We're out of time. This has been so good. Remember, order my series, Christ's Message to Seven Churches, and my book called A Light in Darkness. I look forward to seeing the next program. It's going to be great. We're going to pick up right here. God bless you. Renner Ministries is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through every available media to the uttermost parts of the earth. Discover the many ways you can help us make a difference in lives around the world with the word of God. 
we invite you to partner with us in teaching, strengthening, and rescuing lives for the glory of God. Together, we can make a difference that will last throughout eternity. 